Welcome, church, to the house of the Lord this morning. Thank you, Sister Mary, for that delightful hymn. I hope you're ready to receive from the Lord this morning, church. We have the distinct privilege to welcome to the pulpit this morning. Uh, um, uh, what's that dude's name? You are now tuned in to the Sermon Archives of William R. Horn. Kingdom Dreamer Productions. (laughs) Welcome in. Welcome in. We are back. The Sermon Archives of William R. Horn. Yours truly... Back again, this is season one, Sermons of Days Past. We are going through my hard drive and releasing sermons that have been sitting there for far too long. Today we have a sermon, again in the context of Springfield, Ohio, from my church where I served as youth pastor during my college years. This one is from the summertime, June 9th, 2013, and it's called One Thing Remains. If you know your scripture, you probably know where it's coming from, First Corinthians 13, often known as the love chapter. One thing remains. Again, uh, sermons like this are always contextual, so the city and the church matters for how the sermon is formed, uh, for the content of the sermon, and the way it's preached. So I just want to always remind that, that even though I'm putting sermons out on a podcast, they're not really made for this podcast. You're, it's more like you peeking in to what's happening in a certain community um, and the contextualization of the scriptures in there. So you'll see as we get to other contexts, I know this has so far been pretty loaded with Springfield, uh, but that's important. Sermons are contextual, at least good sermons are. Uh, We've done a lot of like mass sermon creation in recent days where, you know, it's more about just putting out just something to continually preach and put out no matter the context. Um, but every sermon I preach is contextual, um, which means I don't do much repeating. And if I do, there's a lot of changes. But with that being said, I also feel like as I re-listen to this one, this is kind of the spot where I feel like I hit my stride in confidence in preaching. Um, all the you know hermeneutics and homiletics classes uh, told me that, you know, or other preachers have been doing it for years. You got to have 100 sermons under your belt. Till you start really, you know, flowing and filling it. And that's probably true. I don't know if I'm quite at a hundred today. I don't know if I'm there. I'm getting close though. I gotta be getting close, right? Um, but I do feel like this is kind of my early hit of stride where I'm preaching with more confidence. Um, you can kind of hear it in the voice. But before we jump in again, follow me on Twitter, William R. Horn. Um, if you like to do the tweets and things, just a good place to connect, easiest place for me to connect because I don't I don't want to be on every social media. It's just too much, though. Uh, Twitter's a lot on its own. But follow me on Twitter. Again, Kingdom Dreamers, you can support us, the movement, myself, um, at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamer. Um, want to highlight one tier today. You can support us for as little as $5 a month. But there is a tier called The Dreamer, which is a $10 a month tier um, in this tier. Some of the special rewards get you obviously get invited to the exclusive Discord community where we can chop it up about anything you want. 
you get a follow on your your social media. So Kingdom Dreamers and myself will follow you on Twitter. Uh, maybe old boy Kellen Reeves will follow you too if I can get him to get his tweet game up. Um, you also receive a Kingdom Dreamer wristband and a Kingdom Dreamer t-shirt. So kind of get your merch in for $10 a month. Uh, really represent. Um, and you get the joy of supporting the movement. So the Dreamer tier, $10 a month. Check it out, patreon.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamer. You can also check out Everything else from us, other podcasts, writing, blogs, all those things uh, at kingdomdreamer.com. But let's jump in. One thing remains, 1 Corinthians 13, Springfield, Ohio, in my church, June 9th, 2013. The presence of the Lord is definitely here today, and I pray that, that we would bask in it and we'd relax in it, that we would... Get a clear vision for what God has for our life and what he wants to say to us today. Because we, we live in a world that is hard-hearted, hard-headed, and soft-minded. People are enslaved to sin and refuse to face the reality of it. We're taught not to think. In fact, we don't want to think because then we'll have to face our problems. So we numb our thoughts with drugs or playing life like a game that isn't actuality with real consequences for our choices. We like to complain how hard life is, but we won't face the problem and turn to the creator for the solutions. Instead, we sit back and watch violence and darkness dominate our cities, and we passively promote the sin in our choices of media and how we speak to each other, we blindly look over our own submission to sin and evil, and we watch this sad situation kill us and our families. Our soft-minded thoughts are so screwed up that we don't even know what the word love means. We use the word love with more inanimate objects and food than we do our own family, right? We say, I love you to our significant others, but we're not willing to commit a life to them. Marriage is not needed. Shacking is preferred. And while we think we're making love with our physical advances with multiple people, we're really just making hates and a broken trail for our children and ourselves. We love our families, but do families even exist anymore? You're a minority if your parents have been only married once and they're still together. Somewhere in this selfish pursuit that sin causes us to go on, the church lost its way too, meaning local churches, not the church as a whole. And we stopped loving and started hating based off our own prejudices and made religious clubhouses instead of the houses of God. Somewhere we decided to be passive with sin in our own lives and hateful towards others we like to call sinners. We like to say we're on a mission, but our mission is to fix everybody who we call sinners. And if you didn't notice, religion doesn't fix anybody. It just covers it up. But real love, it listens, and it gives the real solution, which is found in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that when we put faith in him and rest in his grace, we're seen as good even though we're not, and we never will be good in comparison to God. But faith, God sees. We claim to love God, but we won't follow his commandments. 
Our love is real distorted, huh? We must think correctly about love or we're never going to be able to love those around us or love God how we're commanded to. Instead, we'll keep ourselves enslaved to sin and evil in this world. The great Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This morning, I'd like to walk through a powerful portion of scripture with you. We're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 13, if you'd like to turn there today. And I hope that you will slow down and eliminate everything else from your mind and just engage this text with me and see how true love looks and how true love will last and it is the power to transform us in our city. So follow along with me through the first half of 1 Corinthians 13. It reads, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patience. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So many call this the love chapter of the Bible for obvious reasons. The word love's in there like a million times. I didn't count, so I can't tell you actually how many. But when we look at the big picture of this letter Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, Chapter 13 falls in a section on spiritual gifts. So just before it, Paul addresses an issue in the Corinthian church, how they keep elevating spiritual gifts and themselves a lot higher, and they start categorizing people in the church. He says that everybody in the church, all those who have faith in Christ, have an important role in the body of Christ that everybody has a spiritual gift and it's to be used in a certain way, but they all need each other. One's not better than the other. And he uses the example of a body in chapter 12. It's like the hand, it can't be the eye, and your eye can't be a foot, but if one of those things is missing, you would sure know, right? Same thing with the church. When somebody's not doing their role, things aren't quite right. But then he ends chapter 12 saying, let me show you a more excellent way. Sure, you can practice spiritual gifts, but do you do those correctly? And he goes to chapter 13. And he says, spiritual gifts are pointless without love. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I don't love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So if if I'm speaking, if I'm even praying, doing anything, even if I'm worshiping and it's not authentic, I'm not loving, all I'm doing is making noise. I'm not doing anything real. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries, I have all this knowledge and I have faith even to move mountains like Jesus was saying. 
but I don't love, I'm nothing. It's meaningless. If I give all my possessions away, I feed the poor, and I even suffer for the gospel, but I don't love, then all that I did is useless. If I stand up here and preach to you today, but I don't love, this sermon means nothing. If you come to church today and you sit in these pews, well, the chairs, that's nice, not pews. Right, pews stink, that was what similar says. Right, but if you come to church today, you sit here in 10 church, but you don't love those around you, then you're gaining nothing. If we all leave here and go back to our families instead of going to the bars and the crack houses, but we don't love our families, we're just replacing one sin with another. Harsh, right? We have screwed up motives sometimes when we love or claim to love. And Paul doesn't pull away on this, but it's hard. He says there's a better way, the way of love. Love should drive all that a Christian does. But wait, I thought we had a screwed up view of love, right? We love food more than our own family. Well, let's see what Paul says love is. First, he says, love is patience. Now, most of us, including myself, really don't know what the word patient means, so I looked up in the dictionary. Because a lot less drama would be happening if we all knew what the word patient meant. And it says in the dictionary, it says, patience is bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, or annoyances with calmness. Bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, or annoyance with calmness. Patience is the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. Loving someone means revenge isn't in your vocabulary. It is instead full of endurance and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly instead of trying to fix problems yourself. It's patient with people. Paul says if you are truly going to love somebody, you'll endure all the pain, all the difficulties, and even the little annoying things that happen in your relationship with people. And by relationship, I mean like anybody from your mom to the stranger on the street. Everybody you run into. If you're going to truly love them how God calls, you will endure this pain, the things that come with sinners. You'll be patient. And this also goes with God, right? If we are to love God, we will endure all the pain, all the difficulties, and annoyances in that relationship. Now, see, in this one, it's a lot easier to point out where the problems is, right? There's only one sinner in this relationship. So most of those annoyances and difficulties come from us, right? We don't want to wait for answers from God. We want it now. We don't want to walk through the suffering that God allows us to go through. We want to get out of it. We don't want it. We end up bitter. We don't want to follow God's commandments, even though we know they're better for us. We want to do it our way. We're not patient. We don't endure very well. But if we truly love God with this patience, we'll walk through our trials with joy and hope coming out stronger, which is what he intended. We'll wait patiently on those answers to prayer, and we'll do the things God commands us and reap the benefits from it. Love is patience. Love is kind and is not jealous. Now, these characters of love seem obvious to us, but it's amazing how often we're just not kind, right? We have trouble saying kind things or being gentle with others. And yes, there's a time to call people out when they're in their sin, to talk to them about these things, but we often use it as an excuse just not to be gentle with people, 
We're just harsh. We don't care. We're not kind. We prefer to be a negative critic over a positive enforcer. We don't want to naturally be kind, but true love is kind. Love is not jealous, and in this context, it means it's referring to ourselves. So when we say love is not jealous, love doesn't desire things or control for itself. And this isn't to confuse jealous love that God has for us. God jealously loves us, meaning he, he wants us for his own. He wants to bask us in his love, and we should have that same type of love for our spouses, that we want to bask them in a love that's unconditional. But this jealous love that Paul's talking about is evil. It's the one that wants to control and manipulate with a fake love. It wants what the person can give and not the actual person. That's this jealous love that Paul is talking about. And Satan loves to use this false love to hurt and control and drag people down wrong paths, right? So many great men and women have fallen because they were, quote, in love. And somebody manipulated them and dragged them the wrong way. And that calls us to wisdom, right? To see what is true and what is not. And ask ourselves, are we manipulating people with a fake love? Love does not brag. It is not arrogance. It's not prideful and focused on building up yourself but it's humble and takes the servant road. It seeks to serve those you love, and that should be everybody. And when it gets the spotlight, it points to Jesus instead of themselves. When somebody loves with their real love, they're aware of their tendency to sin, and they seek to fight it so they can truly love. And when they fall, they're quick to repent. They're not prideful to hold things back and never say, I'm sorry, because I'm always right. But if we love somebody, we're quick to repent and know we're going to fall. And those who are full of pride and arrogance are far too blind to see their own sin. So they never can truly love. They can just hurt. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. That's a fun word. Unbecomingly. Instead, what love does is it does the right thing. Unbecomingly, in Paul's context, is connected with things of violence, cursing, oath-taking, or any inappropriate acts. So if love is present, violence is never present. There's no love that exists in an abusive relationship. It's not there. Love doesn't exist where people are tore down and not built up. Love doesn't need to say the words, I promise, because their yeses will be yes, and their noes will be no. If one loves, they will not just do what they say most of the time. They'll do it 100% of the time. And we've become a people that are far too quick to make excuses, and they're not even good ones, amen? amen. Love acts correctly, not inappropriately. So... We're called to love everybody, but we don't love everybody the same, right? I don't love anybody else like I'm going to love my future wife, right? I love her one way that I'm not loving anybody else. I don't love my other sisters in Christ the same way I love Kylie. But my sisters in Christ, I love like a sister. 
We're called to love everybody, but we need to know what's appropriate for that relationship. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. And this one clearly underlines all of them, right? And it's the one that so easily kills our love is when we seek ourselves. Often we love others because we want love back. That's our motive. I'll give 50%, you give the other 50%. But love's not 50%, it's 100. We can just look at our great example of Jesus Christ who gave 100% and expected zero back. He gave 100% of himself, was spit on, cursed at, and killed because he loved. That's our example of love. Not just a high standard we won't reach, that's our example of love. A love that does not seek its own, but always seeks the other first. Think about our city, if everybody loved not seeking themselves. Poverty wouldn't exist anymore because everybody in need would be given to. Drugs wouldn't be around because we wouldn't have to numb ourselves from the pain because people would love. If we loved unselfishly, a lot of things would change because love doesn't seek its own. Love drives out hate. Love is not provoked and it does not take into account wrongs. So if you're loving, you will not be easily angered or irritated, is what Paul's talking about when he says love is not provoked. There'll be a calmness and peace in hard situations. That you won't go off the chain when something's wrong, but you're calm. You're not provoked if you love somebody. You know we're all sinners here. Something's going to go wrong somewhere. But there's a calm about it. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? It doesn't count all the wrongs and hold them against people. It essentially forgives them and then erases the record like it was never there. Because that's exactly what God did for us through Jesus Christ. He forgave us, and not only did he forgive us, but he replaced our wrongs with Jesus' rights. And we're now seen as good, even though we're not When we love others, we should seek to forgive them in the same way. And this is not to say not to have wisdom, right? There's some relationships where there's been abuse or it's wrong, things have been hurt too much, and you need to be separate. But not forgiving is never in that equation. Forgiving and truly letting those go and not holding wrongs against each other is freedom for them and freedom for you. And that's what love does. Love is not provoked. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. If you love somebody, you will give them the truth. You won't sit back and watch sin destroy their lives, but you'll give them the hard truth. The truth of the gospel, the absolute truth, the only way to live is in Jesus Christ, resting in God's grace. And all else is self-destruction. That's the type of truth we need to tell others if we love them. If we love those sitting right around us right now, we will give them the gospel. If we love our families, we will lead them in the gospel. If we love our spouses, we will give them the truth of the gospel in every act, word, and deed that we say to them. 
Love always tells the truth. It never lies. It never cheats. And if we love God, we'll rejoice in him because he is truth. He is the absolute truth. You ever see those people that have the joy of the Lord, and you're like, well, why can't I get that? The key to their joy is that they love God. And when you love God, you can rejoice in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We see this expression, all things, said four times with four different words. And all things here refers to literally all things, at all times, in all occasions. There's not an exception is the point Paul's trying to make. He says, first, love bears all things, meaning it stands up in the struggle that happens in relation with people. It stands up in the nonsense that others and ourselves bring to the table when we're relating with one another, right? Love doesn't suddenly stop when things get crazy, but it bears it. And this is why the Christian marriage, the one that's driven by the true love that God gives us, stands up in all those things, right? It doesn't fall apart. This is why the church shouldn't split because it loves each other. And it'll stand in all the nonsense that happens when a bunch of sinners get together, right? This is what happens in our friendships and our families. If we truly love, we will bear all the things that Satan throws at those relationships. And we'll entrust God for the strength and endure through those. Love bears all things. Love also believes all things. Now, if you take... This by itself believes all things. That can mean anything, right? Paul's not saying love just believes anything that comes its way, right? It doesn't believe lies. It doesn't believe things that it knows are evil. But he's saying it believes all things, meaning it gives people the benefit of the doubt, right? We have a tendency to see people negatively or judge them before we even know them just based off what we see. Love instead sees the best in others before we prejudge. It seeks to know somebody and listen to them and find out who they actually are, not who we think they are. And that's what Christ offers us, right? That's what the church should offer. This love that doesn't say, oh, I see how they dress, I see who they are, I know who they are. And then move on, assume things about them, right? Oh, I see all these tattoos, they must be, you know, in and out of prison, whatever. I know who they are. Oh, I see that, that white person in a nice dress. They're probably from the suburbs and too ignorant of what I'm going through. I don't want to talk to them. All these prejudged things that come in our head. But love, it says, we're all here in Christ. Some are not living in Christ and some are. But I'm going to get to know all of them. And I'm going to show them the love of Christ. Before I think who they actually are. That's what it means for love to believe all things. And so often, relationships and different things are broken because of false accusations and jumping to conclusions instead of just listening. So love calls us to listen. Next, Paul says, love hopes all things. When we live in love, we'll hope for those that come to faith. When we love God, we'll hope in his new kingdom coming and we'll 
trust that he's going to be faithful to his promises. When we live in love, we don't live in despair. We don't live in this negative attitude, right? People are like, oh, they'll never come to Christ. They're too far gone. Or, oh, God's never going to answer my prayer. Christ isn't coming back. What's the matter? But when you live out love and you rest in love, you're actually living with a hope. You know the good that's going to come. You hope that the Holy Spirit will draw whatever family member it is that's not trusting in Christ to that, and you'll pray faithfully for that if you love them. And when you love others, you're also handing that hope to them also, a hope that can keep us alive, that can keep us driven towards good. And lastly, Paul says, love endures all things. Love never fails. When true love is presence, failure is not. It's an extreme statement, but a true one. When true love is presence, failure is not presence. This is true in our marriages, in our families, in our relationship with strangers on the street, in our church. If real love is present, God will empower us and we will endure everything that's thrown at it. That this type of love is impossible to have without God, right? We need the help of the Holy Spirit to love others and even to love ourselves in some cases. So we need to, we need to ask God for strength to love like that, and we need to look at ourselves and evaluate where is our love at. Does it look like 1 Corinthians 13, or does it look very prideful and selfish? However, Paul doesn't just stop there and say, all right, you need to love. Here's how love looks. He says, let me tell you even more. And so we flip to the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So back in verse 8, it says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in parts, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul has already told us that love is essential for the practice of spiritual gifts. In fact, doing anything that's been gifted to you without love is pointless. He's also showed us and tried to paint a picture of how love looks. Right, And now he says, not only is it essential, but it's the only thing that's going to last. It's the only thing that's never going to die. All the other things that we have, they don't give us a full picture of the kingdom. He says, when Jesus comes back, everything that's partial will disappear. Right. So spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy and, and preaching and evangelism, all those things will disappear when God comes back, because we won't need him anymore, right? The real thing will be here. But he says, love, that'll last. That goes all the way through. Love is eternal, 
And this should change our focus, right? That we're not focused on investing all our time into gifts and things we know will die, but we're investing it in love, in loving one another, because it will never die. Other things are good and need to happen, right? Spiritual gifts need to be used. We saw that in chapter 12, if you read that before. But he's saying they're only partial. They only give me a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. They're going to disappear. Then he writes, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, we like to use this verse typically as the one to throw at somebody like, hey, you need to man up right now. Stop being a child. All right. Hey, you need to grow up. Right. And I agree. That's true. We're in desperate need of men and women to mature in Christ and stop living in childhood, right? Men need to be leaders and stop sitting in their homes playing video games. Women need to mature past teenage drama and raise their children in godliness. Young men need to go find work and stop living in their parents' basement. (laughs) Young women need to seek something better than love from a man, but maturity in Christ where they'll find the real men. That's a sermon for another day, right? That's not Paul's point here. Yes, people need a man of a woman. Maybe he was putting in a little subliminal like, hey, grow up also. But Paul's point here is to use childhood and manhood as an example of the partial disappearing when the full thing comes. So when I was a child, I appropriately did childlike things, right? I was a child. Big deal. But when I grew into a man, which is a lot sooner than we make it, when I grew into a man, all those things don't exist anymore, right? So when you look at a child, you can only partially see who they're going to grow up to be, right? You don't know who they're going to grow up to be, but you can see some things in them, how they act, who they are, somewhat how they look. But when they grow up, you have the complete thing, right? They're right in front of you. It's there. They're grown up. All the childlike things have disappeared, and now they're complete, So you get a full view. And he says, that's the same thing with God's kingdom, right? Spiritual gifts, this very sermon, even the Bible, only partially reveal God and his kingdom to us. So it's all going to disappear when the kingdom comes in full, right? When Jesus comes back and takes his believers and reigns in his kingdom here on earth. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I've been known fully. See, in Corinth, where this church was at, they were famous actually there for making mirrors out of polished metal. So they would know what Paul was talking about here. When we look in a mirror today, they're they're quite a bit clearer just because of technology. But these mirrors they were famous for was just polished metal. If you ever look in polished metal, you can see a reflection, but it's not super clear. He says this is the same thing. Right now, we don't see it super clear. We don't see the full thing, but we see enough to have faith in it, right? We see enough to know it's there. And that's what God gives us. He says, I'm here, my kingdom is coming, but you can't handle the fullness of it yet. He says, when perfection comes, we will know, we will see it in full, right? And this perfection he's talking about is when 
Jesus comes back. Obviously, he'll make things perfect, but he'll also bring us to completeness and maturity, those who are showing faith in Christ. And we'll be able to see clearly and fully what this kingdom of God is like. We will see face-to-face with God this intimate fellowship that we don't fully have now. We just have a little bit. We'll see him face-to-face, and I will fully know God as he fully knows me right now. And then he ends saying, but now faith, hope, love. Abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul, Paul ends this chapter with his point that there's something you need to invest your time in. It's these three things, faith, hope, and love. He didn't say abide in self, religion, and stuff. He said abide in faith, hope, and love. That love is the only thing that will last in this kingdom. That's why it's greatest of all. And faith and hope come from love, right? If we love somebody or we love God, we will have faith in them. We will trust them. If we love God or love others, we will hope for them and hope in them. No one will come through, right? And he says, love is the greatest of these all. That's because even faith and hope will disappear when the complete thing's here, when Jesus comes back, right? Our faith will become sights and our hopes will be fulfilled because Jesus comes back and wipes away every tear and makes things perfect. But love, love will still remain. Love will be here because God is love, Right? That's what John tells us. God is love. Love goes forever. It's the one thing we can participate in now that will always be around. So why would I not invest my life into it? I have a guaranteed bank that this is forever. I want to invest in something that remains. And if this is the one thing that remains, we probably should get pretty familiar with it, with how true love looks. So there's two things I think we need to do in light of this. These are short, so hang with me. But first, we need to live out love. And second, we need to live in love. So living out love is loving others and God should be our number one motive in life. We should be seeking that over all else. In fact, Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. And he's quoting it from the law in Deuteronomy. So Old Testament, New Testament, the greatest thing is to love God and then love your neighbor. That should drive us. Love encompasses everything. If you love somebody, you won't do them wrong. Don't have to worry about that. If you love God, you will worship him and you'll read his word. So examine your life. I mean, examine my life and see if it fits Paul's description that he gives in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Is your love patient and kind, or is it full of pride and manipulative? What's your motive for loving others? What's your motive for loving God? Check yourself, because I know that I want to be the best at loving, because that thing's going to last forever. So if I'm a professional, that means like when everything dies, I'm still a professional when I get to the kingdom, right? If I'm a professional at loving, because it lasts. Second, we need to live in love. 
Now, living in love means we are resting in the true love that comes from God. That there's no true love really outside of him. We can't love others without his power. So often we don't want to rest in God's love. We'll acknowledge it, right? We'll even sing Jesus loves you to our children. But we instead live in guilt. We live in shame. We don't let God's love consume us. We know we don't deserve it, so we just acknowledge it and don't live in it. But when you live in God's love, you know who you are in Christ, that you are somebody. You know that you can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you live in love with God, you know you are forgiven. You know you are free. You know you are truly loved and you have the best father. Right? God is your father. He loves you. And saying God loves you is not a cliche statement, but an eternal truth that we need to wash ourselves in. God loves you. God loves you. Sin and all, everything that you bring to the table, God loves you. And like a good father, he gives great gifts and he disciplines when he needs to. So two things we need to do. We need to live out love and we need to live in love. The worship team could come back up. I want to, in closing, I want to read a quote from an Asian theologian. He's actually a Catholic, but he's a bad Catholic, right? Back in this, uh, bad joke. But his name is Kum, all right? That's, and it's not spelled like, it's spelled like Kung, but it's pronounced Kum. And he wrote a book called The Church. And this is the quote he had in there. I thought it was powerful. He says, in these last days, the time is fulfilled now. The hour of decision has struck now. It is time now for man to free himself from his slavery to money, power, instincts, the world, and give his heart to God, the Lord. It's time now for him to give up deceit and hardness of heart, hatred and all wrongdoing, and devote himself to radical love for God and radical love for his neighbor. It's time for us to invest our lives into something that actually matters. It's time for us to invest our time into something that will last forever. So we're going to have our altar time right now, and you can come to this place of sacrifice or in your seats. But I pray that you don't leave here without learning to live out love, live in love, and know that you are loved. Because only one thing will remain. Check us out at kingdomdreamer.com.